You're listening to an irreverent podcast. For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hey friends, welcome to the Speaking in Church podcast. I'm Josie and today is another treat for me. I mean, everybody's a treat for me, but this is my nerd. These are my nerd treat episodes. So welcome to my nerd haven. Today we are joined by David Morris from Lake Drive Books, a amazing publisher that has, you know, helped a lot of my friends. So I am a huge fan, David. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm great. I'm great. That's a wonderful intro. Thank you so much. I'm You're glad welcome. it's amazing. It's it's a new thing, mm-hmm. Lake Drive Books. So, um, you know, it's becoming known, and I'm thrilled to know that you know. Oh yeah, I um, I mean, I like to stay up to date in the publishing world as a book nerd. But tell us a little bit about you and your job and all this wonderful world of publishing. Oh sure, yeah. Um, well, I've been in publishing almost 30 years. I can't believe it. Um, I thought I was going to be a psychotherapist. I have, I have oh, that voice, you know? Yeah. And um, <laughs> um, I, then I thought I was going to be a religious study, mm-hmm. um, religious studies um, academic. Mm-hmm. I have a PhD in psychology and religion. <laughs> oh, okay. Casual. <laughs> which, which is like social science of religion. It's like sociology of religion. I kind of think that way I look at religion sort of um, in a kind of pra- pragmatic mm-hmm objective try to look at it from objectively from outside looking in um but i've always been a participant because i grew up evangelical (laughs) um but my education my grad my grad studies work helped me put language to the background that i have um that we all that so many of us share and we're trying to find words for um Mm -hmm. so it gave me a certain language for that very specific but it's it's good um but you know there's not a lot of academia as its own thing and um, always kind of living between two worlds of psychology and religion. Um, you know, I've found myself into what's often called the accidental profession of publishing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I just kind of learned, you know, found my way. Uh, I was just paying the bills in a job for a political science textbook publisher, kind of a one person operation um, called Chatham House Publishers way back when. And then um, I ended up getting a job working for guideposts books which is part of guidepost magazine um out of working out of manhattan um i i used to commute in on the train from new jersey every day um and uh walked right past the empire state building um i was there actually in 9 11 believe it or not too which is just 22 years ago yesterday um and kind of you know learned all about the different kinds of publishers that are out there um broad market uh religious christian publishing um and then uh after a good spell at that a good 17 years i mean i learned i learned a lot got really good at writing jacket copy for one thing because we did a lot of um, (laughs) market testing at that because it was a direct direct to consumer publishing program we kind of acquired books um that for people who were on this large mailing list Mm -hmm. that a magazine generates Mm -hmm. Um, it's called direct to consumer publishing, direct marketing. Um, and most of the subscribers to guideposts, if anybody's familiar with it, or are, are like your grandmother or maybe even your great grandmother yeah, <laughs> at this point, <laughs> at this point. Yeah. It's still kind of like that. Um, 
but it was a captive audience. And so, you know, we, we would publish a lot of books, a lot yeah. of volume, more of a narrowly focused program, but a lot of volume. And we would license, we would create books, but we'd also license books from other publishers. And so I got to know all the publishers in the marketplace. That was kind of a cool thing about that job is I got to see the whole landscape of publishing New York, you know, going to great lunches at nice Italian restaurants in Manhattan and, yeah. and having the uh, having the other person pay all the time because I was the customer or Hell I was the yeah. client. <laughs> um, that was fun. I was wearing suits and ties in those days. Um, and then um, then eventually after becoming the director of that program after so many years, um, I, I was asked to be publisher at Zondervan, which is <laughs> <Yikes>. like, <laughs> yeah, it's like the leading, it, you know, I would argue, and maybe I'm biased, but I don't think so. I think there's studies that back this up. It's the best known um, brand in terms yeah. of Christian publishing and maybe, maybe not always the most successful commercially, but it's, it's definitely the best known probably mostly because of all the Bible publishing that it's done. Yeah. They the make past. all the cute Bibles. <laughs> yeah. the cute, yeah. All kinds, all kinds. Yeah. Uh, it's huge, 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 millions and millions of dollars every year. And then they also have published some pretty famous trade books. Uh, Rick Warren's purpose driven life mm -hmm. in particular. Um, so when I came into Zondervan, uh, I was, uh, it was 2013 and the purpose driven life had been out for 10 years. So I was more of like a, you know, a steward, a caretaker of its steward. Ooh, that's religious language. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so I was a care, kind of a caretaker of it actually kind of cleaned up some things about the book, um, in, in, in reprints. Um, and, and I, you know, I went from being kind of a book buyer and a person writing Jack, a uh, test copy in an office in Manhattan to having, um, all of the, uh, you know, having Rick Warren's cell phone number in my, in my cell phone, where I was going to pocket dial him. Um, and then all the literary agents, you know, the big author personalities, as far as the evangelical Christian space goes, um, the big, the big dollar advances. Mm. Um, so Zondervan was part of um, Harper Collins. Not, yeah. many, not everybody knows that it's uh, since about the 1980s, but they let Zondervan work pretty independently as long as they're hitting their numbers and, and goodness they were with Bibles and Rick mm -hmm. Warren. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the publishing business has just been rapidly evolving in the last couple of decades, Yeah, uh, which parallels a lot of my time in publishing, uh, mainly because we, of the digital revolution, the loss of bookstores, the rise of Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it, you know, it, it, there's like all this consolidation going on. So Harper Collins bought the other really big evangelical publisher based in Nashville called Thomas Nelson and it merged those two companies. They put, they actually put, they, they, they turned, um, they combined Thomas Nelson and Zondervan to call it Harper Collins Christian publishing. And the executive committee, the executive C-suite office was in Nashville, believe it or not. So um, so eventually that job for me, uh, they consolidated even more. Not everybody knows this, but the publisher for Zondervan now is in Nashville. They've moved that position oh. there. I'm staying here in Grand Rapids and have, have embarked on my own uh, for the last couple of years, trying to lean on all of my experience um, in a very different way. Um, I, uh, you know, 
I come from more of a social scientific, um, examined academic approach to religion. And I've always, you know, my, my uh, religion society program in grad school had a very strong focus on race, class, and gender, mm. um, which isn't something a lot of psych and religion people do no. much with, but I, I, you know, I did because it was part of my program, studied homelessness in particular. So more of a class analysis. Ooh, um, speaking my language here. Mm. Uh, oh, I'm and, passionate. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so I think in terms of publishing, um, I always wanted to get back to books that are more about change and, and insight from the margins. Um, one of my professors where I went to school at Drew University, Karen McCarthy Brown, well known for her book, um, Mama Lola, Voodoo Priestess in Brooklyn. It's an ethnography of voodoo in Brooklyn, New York. Um, she would talk about how those on the margins are epistemologically privileged. Mm. They see reality better than white people like me necessarily. Mm. Um, and you know, that, that to me in my book publishing that I do now is so important, um, because you hear stories and you see things and you're like, why am I not aware of this? Why, why is my reality shaped? Um, why, why am I just so like unaware? Yeah. Um, and that, I think that's, that's my job now. I, I have a big passion, particularly for people who have lost their faith or struggled with faith and religion. Me being, I count myself among them. Uh, and um, I, I've looked at that psychologically. And um, so I kind of know the dynamics to it, which gives me a lot of insight and sense of perspective as I try to publish books that reach that, you know, that by these authors that are reaching readers who are trying to find their way in this new world that we live in. So that's a long story about me, but um, you kind of see the arc there. No, I mean, I like long. I mean, it was not that long, David. Come on. And yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was good. <laughs> it was a good story. Oh, my gosh. There's so much I want to get into. But let's talk a little bit about um, only because you just said this, that people that live in the margins are epistemologically privileged. I love that. I totally agree. Um, I mean, I'm first generation Mexican American woman um, who did not grow up rich. And so often I feel like even though I didn't grow up societally privileged, if you would say, like I don't have, you know, the money or the connections or whatever that other people have, I feel emotionally and spiritually privileged. Because for me, the concept of like, unconditional love is not that hard to grasp where a lot of people have difficulty with that and that is like attributed to the difficulties that i have had in life or um right. like the the resilience that everybody wants and seeks like that just was a reality that i had to live through and i feel like i didn't have to work too hard for i mean i did have to work but it was thrust upon me whereas no offense to my white partner, but my white partner grew up incredibly privileged. He's tall, male, whatever, whatever, whatever. And he has a harder time with a lot of the, the sociological aspects of living, honestly. I mean, he has mm -hmm. all these privileges. He went into STEM. His parents paid for his school. But he can't function at a resilient level that he would like to because he's just not accustomed to it. I don't know. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, I don't think you really know unconditional love, which you mentioned, uh, until it's been tested. Mm. 
in, in, in you know, and seeing it in, in adversity, in, in adversity, in diversity, mm-hmm. um, to be able to, to be able to be in conversation with someone uh, who's very different from you, see things differently than you, who fails you. Yeah. Um, you know, if if you're a white person, you don't have that experience mm-hmm. as much. Um, yeah, you, you guys know, are so from... polite. I'm sorry. <laughs> you guys are so polite and passive aggressive. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had a lot of practice. I've yeah. <laughs> I've been told how how that's how. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. I you know I live in I live in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, um, and I you know I I grew up a preacher's kid. We didn't have money. Oh, preacher's kid! You're yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah. in there. Preacher's kid turned Christian counselor. Cute. Um, <laughs> yep. And uh, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, we were always watching our our pennies. Um, you know, I I had jobs from when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Uh, paper route. You know, pizza delivery guy. You know, I paid my way through college. Um, and when my wife and I first got going, and you know, first started out. I was in grad school. We finally started having kids after about seven years. And um, we lived in a beat up old house in North central New Jersey that I, and I had to learn how to fix it. I had to get the tools. I spent a lot of time on it and, you know, and it was like, it was, it was actually soul nourishing Mm -hmm. to have that experience. And then I, I live in a fairly affluent part of Grand Rapids. I mean, the cost of living here is not as bad. The housing isn't as bad. At least well, it wasn't 10 as years ago. Orange County is where I live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the rents are, I mean, the, the mortgages are different and rents here. Uh, but it just, I'm just, just um, gobsmacked, to be honest with you. When I walk around this neighborhood and I see young families in like these homes, I never could have afforded. Yeah, truly. <laughs> and I just wonder how, how is this possible? You know, mm-hmm. I never grew up like this, but it's, it's, but for them, it's like, this is what the water looks like. This is how the water, they don't even know it's there. That's the water. there. Yep. Yeah. And like, they just cannot see below them, right? Like people can't see below them as clearly as they can see the people above them. And those of us who grew up again, having to fix our own houses, having to make our own way through the world. We, I feel like we just have more empathy for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what comes out of struggle. Yeah. Let's, well, let's hope. Let's transition into publishing. I feel like this is a good, you know, we're empathetic. We're nice people. Everybody, okay, we, we're 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 cool here. So let's talk about the big world of publishing now that you know who we are. Totally. <laughs> so what has been the most interesting part about Lake Drive Books? I mean, it's a small publisher. It's kind of unique. What is like? What are you facing as a company? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great complicated question. So let's 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 pick part of it. Um, there's definitely some things I want to say about that, um, but I think I think it really comes down to uh, the way the world is so segmented in the digital revolution that we're now in and that Mm. we've been experiencing. Um, So a way, a way I like to explain this sometimes is, uh, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I I used to listen to classic rock on the radio. That's how I found out about music. That's how I got to know music. Then Napster came along and blew that up. Mm -hmm. Right. And now there's like so many options. You can stream anything you want. Yeah. Um, 
And so there's, you know, there's really no mass culture the way that it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who really watches sitcoms on network TV in the evening anymore? Yeah. No, it's, it's all the different streaming services and the exciting shows that everybody talks about. But, you know, you could go, you could go a couple of years before you actually find out and really understand and get and understand Ted Lasso, for example. Oh, yeah. You know, if you don't have that particular streaming service, you may never have discovered it. Whereas mm-hmm. back in the days of MASH, everybody was watching MASH. Yeah. And so that economically and culturally has had effects and it, it's it's multi-dimensional if you ask me um but from a economic point of view it simply means that um once you get through the gatekeepers the curating gatekeepers of media and content you 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 would make it you've mm-hmm. made it um but nowadays that ceiling is a lot higher and the people at the top the the level of culture is a lot thinner yeah um so it's like a lot of big influencers big celebrities not very much in between Mm -hmm. and then a ton of us on the bottom yeah there was a story in publishers weekly like maybe 18 months ago by now about how all of the mid-level publishers and we're talking like 100 million dollar companies that doesn't sound like mid-level to me it sounds like a lot of money for real um hundred million dollar companies have been bought up by the larger publishers, the big five, they like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because those big five publishers, they're, they're all competing for this very scarce thin layer yeah. at the top. Um, and they're trying to maximize economies of scale. Um, they're, there's just been a lot of a lot of changes that just make it more difficult for them to earn money one of the interesting things in publishing is that uh with the with the maturation of amazon everyday readers are realizing that hey you know i can discover this book by this author then i can discover all their previous books Mm -hmm. whereas in the past that wasn't quite as easy you had to go with what was there at the bookstore at that time yep so now backlist books for publishers are far more important than they ever used to be. There's a lot more revenue there, but it's also made that that sort of churn and maybe even planned obsolescence of frontlist books that much harder to make money on. Yeah. Um, so you, you're finding a lot of consolidation going on, fewer titles being published on the front list by publishers, like where I used to be at Zondervan, for example. Um, so so there's there's just a there's a lot of challenges there. Um, and I think too, that, um, books just don't, I mean, they just, they're just, it's harder to get the sales. It's yeah. harder to get the unit sales. I watch, I mean, never mind what happens at my, my small, you know, new independent imprint. Uh, I watch what goes on and I'm actually, I actually act as a literary agent for, for authors as well. I have a small list of authors where I'm a literary agent. Um, and I watch what goes on with their books, with those authors, and I watch what goes on with other authors at those publishers. Um, and, and you know, maybe it's ranking well on Amazon in the first few weeks, but check it out three months later or six months later. Okay, it, well, it's at a ranking where I happen to know they're only selling about a book a week or maybe three books a week. Wow, that's so crazy that you know that. That is such... <laughs> that yeah. is- so uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah yeah it's a lot of reality yeah. testing to be honest with you yeah 
a lot of, and I, I, I like to be honest in, in publishing business because there's so much mystery. There's so much narcissism, if I might say so. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, you know, it, what can be more self-involved than writing a book? I mean, it's, it just comes with the, I agree. I've done it myself. So, and I get narcissistic and magical in my thinking all the time. <laughs> I'm so also a writer, so I completely am like, wow, I'm so good. Yeah. This is so good. <laughs> I'm so brilliant, or I'm yeah. so, or I'm such a horrible writer. It's, it's either one right. or the other. It's nowhere in between. <laughs> Just the self-involved, either way. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's not a, there's not a lot of middle ground, and so you know it it is about working really hard and being patient and and looking at the long game. Yeah. The other big challenge, the really the biggest challenge I face as being a evangelical, progressive minded, post evangelical, you know, whatever labels are, you know, fit the best um, is, uh, is just discoverability. There's such, there's such a massiveness and organized structure to conservative evangelical Christianity in the United States. Mm. I mean, whether whether it's like evangelical proper or it's more the, the the diffuse evangelical mindset, which can even carry over into a Methodist church, which you must oh, know yeah. something about. Yeah. Um, even into a mainline denomination. Um, it's there whether you know it or not. Mm -hmm. um, there, you, you subscribe to certain sort of idealisms about religion, about yeah. faith, about Jesus. And you don't realize you're no different than the person at the non-denominational conservative church down the road. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's such structure around that. And I, and I know that firsthand from my experience, uh, and working in evangelical publishing, there are, it is, it is a very wealthy business. There is a high profit margin going on there. Um, there are executives with very large salaries and it, it's there. And there are such resources and there's such infrastructure um, that's why you'll find at maybe an Episcopal mainline church, someone doing a Beth Moore study mm -hmm. because that's what's there. That's yeah. what's available. That's what's being advertised. That's what's put in front of you in the ads on Amazon. You find that yeah. stuff and church publishing who does publishing for the Episcopal church is minuscule in terms of resources yeah. by comparison. And that's not a value judgment. It's just financially. And infrastructure wise, that's where things are. Um, so, you know, the big challenge is, is how do you create enough revenue for a writer, for an author, for the author's publisher through enough book sales, if not other revenue streams. Uh, so that's, that's really it. But, you know, there is, there is hope, there is opportunity, there is excitement. Um, one of the things I like to tell authors is that, um, first off, that infrastructure of the big church, capital C, is not like it used to be. Denominations are fragmenting. Mm. Um, there are more people who claim no church affiliation whatsoever than there's ever been. Yeah. Um, things are changing in terms of the religious, the free market of religion in the United States. Uh, we are maturing as a country culturally. We're more diverse. There's more pluralism. Um, that's why we're seeing so much nationalism. That's what contributes to a lot of it is people who are fearful of losing the way of life that they once knew are are not happy about it and they're showing and they're acting out. 
speaking psychologically or as a yeah. parent maybe um but um um uh, where was i uh uh oh what i like what i like to tell authors is is the gatekeepers aren't there like they used to be yeah um so if you if you can develop an audience it does not matter the color of your skin it do, it does not matter your gender it does not matter your sexuality it does not matter your theology or your background if you can develop an audience you can be successful as a communicator you can even get big name publishers to take an interest in you because if you've got 100,000 Instagram followers um and that's not all it takes to get a book deal right but but it helps <laughs> if you've got even 25,000 Instagram followers and you are somebody who provides content mm -hmm. and you have expertise if you're just doing selfies all day long and you're a, a, a Christian music artist that that's not enough you need more like 225,000 yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um if you if you can do that you can you can be successful and you can find your way and some authors are figuring that out but it's it's exhausting it's tiring yeah. there's naysayers there's trolls um we had at, at Zondervan I, I I was just really impressed particularly I mean people don't realize this but you know that's that's thought of perhaps as a very male pastorly kind of cultural mm -hmm. publishing house but women took over about 10 years ago yeah, women authors <laughs> are the are really where it's at because they found each other online and they know how to communicate with each other online um, so that made a big, big shift. Um, but there, but that's still conservative culture. There's still a lot there. Um, there was a uh, African-American author, black author that I, I won't name her specifically, but she it, she she definitely had a leg up. She had some famous family members. But uh, people didn't really give her much credit. like her book wouldn't do all that well. but she kept coming to, uh, my publishing team and saying, what do I need to do next? So podcast, grow yeah. your, grow your social media following, grow your email list. She did all of that. She worked really hard and she had help, but she really worked hard at it. And she, she sold 75,000 units her first year, hey, that's right. which was just amazing and surprised everybody. Um, did she really get a great contract after that? I think we, we got pretty close to it, but did we, did we give her what we would have given someone else who, who, hit that kind of thing out the gate I don't know right um it, that's always been a question for me but that's that's an aside um at any rate so I I think that you know the biggest challenge is is discoverability mm -hmm. and you know in in this ex-evangelical world we're in um you know there isn't a lot of media you know where right. there's like big big followings I mean you would love to have a, a million downloads a month right on your podcast oh! but but does, you can't just snap your fingers and make nope. that happen um mm -hmm. you know it does happen you know if you're if you're doing a lifestyle channel on youtube or instagram right or if you've got some special hook that it's very common but to talk about disintegrating faith you know? yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but there's a lot of us we're just not as organized and right. and we're a little bit anti-institutional which is kind of what we should be yeah. um so oh that's gosh. that's the biggest challenge right now is trying to connect people readers to the amazing books that um, yeah. my authors are publishing I I just I'm such an idea person that I'm like trying to mentally take note of all these like hmm be Beth Moore but progressive just bust out all of these devotionals and 
make your money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's actually that's actually a good line of reasoning. Hmm. Nobody steal my idea. I'll yeah. do it eventually. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. funny. Or well, tell us a little bit about Lake Drive Books. I mean, I've been following you guys for a little while, um, for multiple reasons, but I just love I love the vibe. Tell us about it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, I, I call it uh, that we publish books to help you heal, grow, and discover. Mm. It's kind of just a positive tagline. But it's really acknowledging that we have a lot of broken narratives and broken ideologies. And um, we're in a phase where we need to kind of discover who we are again. Um, discover who we've always been. Maybe and have ignored. Um, so I'm excited to tell gritty stories. Never, never uh, censor an author. Mm. I mean, forget about censoring out um, coarse language. I mean, even just you know, you know, not not telling stories as gritty as they need to be because they yeah. they really ought to be. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm. Uh, it has more of a self-help vibe than it does. Well, we just need to get to a truer form of Christ and Christianity. Mm -hmm. that, I, that to me is not even something Christ wanted. Right. Um, it, it's more about how we act in the everyday world, what our relationships look like, how we acknowledge our humanity. To me, that's Christianity. That's Christian. That's Christ. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there there are there are a lot who really want to um, try to. Uh, keep the conversation going inside church institutions. And I support that too. I, I definitely, there, you know, that's, there's, there's structure there. Mm. There's, there's lives being changed and minds being changed there. Um, but I also acknowledge that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of growing up evangelical, we, we didn't learn how to honor our own selves. Mm. Mm -hmm. and we didn't learn how to grow as well as human beings. Um, psychologically speaking, I study a lot about life development and and psychological development and stages of of growth. And if you ask me, spiritually speaking, a lot of us in the evangelical world are more adolescent at the adolescent Ooh, stage. Yeah. We're very ideological. We're very rigid in our beliefs. Mm. We're not as you know. We're not as mature. You're just describing we're... my parents right now. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's, and I think too, that we, you know, we need to learn how to hold our, our spiritual sides more loosely while mm -hmm. still valuing them. Mm -hmm. Like I've always been envious of people of other faiths who don't have a problem talking about their Judaism or their, or their Muslim life mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, you don't hear Christians talking about it in, in, in as authentic a way. I mean, there's, conser yeah. there's, there's conservativeness everywhere. But somehow, you know, you're allowed to wear that identity more on your sleeve. Yeah. But but us evangelical Christians, we kind of obfuscate our identity. No, this is just the identity, isn't it? Yeah. You know, whatever that might be. Um, so I yeah, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but to to get at that particularity, I think, is really important in in the publishing. So uh, you know, so we publish, we, we've got like eight eight authors out. We've signed 15, just had the first book come out a year ago, last July, um, a book on grief, which has done pretty, pretty well. Um, and mm, uh, we've got to check it out. On... I'm pretty obsessed with grief right now. They, well, can't go wrong. Yeah. 
yeah paying attention to what 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 grieves you mm-hmm. yeah. yeah sorry i interrupted you no 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 it's okay that's okay um uh, we we have um you interviewed scott okamoto on your podcast he's like uh, our book's author yeah i uh, wrote a little blurb in that one i felt real famous i felt real yeah <laughs> my dreams have been achieved forget about writing a book a publishing book i'm in the front of a book <laughs> oh there you go yeah yeah you endorsed it thank you very much you're welcome <laughs> yeah and that's what it takes yeah um we've got a book on questions and and talking to god mm. kind of a prayer book uh, we've got a couple of books uh talking about queer stories mm. uh, the most recent one one is one is on an intersex person oh cynthia baca davis she was on yep. the podcast too there you go yeah that is just like one eye-opening story uh, amen <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i you know what i like to say about this and and then um, one of the more recent books is that you may have queer friends across the spectrum but do you really know their stories mm-hmm and um because just our culture our world just hides them and yeah. buries them and and they even are taught to bury their stories so something like a memoir beautifully written by somebody like cynthia mm. uh, just brings it out into the open in such a special way and then re more recently uh brandon flannery's book stumbling a sassy memoir about coming out of evangelicalism Ooh. yeah i'm gonna yeah. him yeah he, he's he's awesome he's awesome he's got a big TikTok following too. we're so connected david i feel like oh, there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and um just working on more books to come um i don't want to not mention somebody but you know there's just really really cool stuff a couple of books this fall um one about overcoming childhood trauma from a spiritual director frank rogers out of the claremont school of theology probably not far from yeah you oh yeah in, in, i in love the Methodist claremont. tradition yeah Claremont's um, like one of the best ones you can go to at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really well respected, uh, proudly proudly liberal school. They like oh, to say. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, then then a title called "Giving Up God" by Sarah Hen Hayward, which was her journey of deconstruction. Just 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 a very normal person realizing, hey, this background I have just doesn't work for me anymore. Mm. Um, not not coming from an extreme situation, but just like. So, you know, all stories are good here. Um, and then Trey Ferguson in January will be coming out. Pastor Trey Ferguson's got a large Twitter following and just um, just really well-liked. And he's got a book about theologizing bigger, bigger theology uh, that I think people are going to love. Just very accessible to read, a lot of fun. Um, fun is important in all this too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I try, agree. I try to remember that. What's the point of books if there's not going to be fun? They have to be readable, right? Yeah. I and mean, you have to actually enjoy the the writing. Um, yeah. I've got one author uh, that we're getting close to on a proposal, and um, her thing is comedy writing. Yes. <laughs> and uh, she's been really um, earnestly concerned about the strength of the writing in general. Like, does it does it make a good point? Does it get anywhere? Does it have good structure? And I'm like, you know. A lot of that stuff is it's there. It could be better, but you are a hysterically funny writer, completely unfiltered. Yeah. And it's just such a joy to read you. And that's gonna take you a long way right there. So just keep going. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I mean, because there's like a there's not a lot of comedy writing. I mean, there is, but it's not a lot, I don't know, not a lot of it is honest enough, you know. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll, I'll make sure you know about this book once it 
Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm very much, uh, because of grief, I've been like avoiding all types of media that are not funny. I mean, except for po politics, but I think that's hilarious too, even though it's depressing. Um, all I consume is comedy. So I just, I feel like more is needed from the deconstruction space because we're all so serious. We're all so like fighting against the man. It's nice to revel in it as well, you know, and to be fun and hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, after a week of work and just being in my own Instagram account, my the the publishing Instagram account, Twitter. Mm. After by by about Thursday or Friday, I feel like okay, I've I've done my time here. Yeah, <laughs> I, gotta, I yeah. gotta go watch some Star Wars. Oh yes, oh Star Wars. <laughs> I love Star Wars, not as much as other people do, but. I have a fond nostalgia yeah. for it. My dad yeah. actually, this is a funny uh, deconstruction story. My dad grew up in Mexico and when they were when he was a kid and Star Wars first came out, they weren't allowed to go to the movies because it was the devil or something. My grandma's a little bit more extreme. And so as soon as my dad came to this country at 19, he watched all of the Star Wars and whatever was out at the time. And he loved Star Wars. He's like obsessed. Although he won't let me take him to Disneyland, he's um, he's concerned he's too old for Disneyland. <laughs> but it's uh, like the Star Wars is there. It's like yeah, but I'm yeah, tired <laughs> now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even even Star Wars to me is kind of like um a modern day mythology. Oh yeah, it, it tells stories. People love to congregate around these stories and talk about them. Mm -hmm. Um. I think we we don't quite value what those do quite enough quite enough i mean right. they do get commercialized and popularized especially now that disney owns it mm -hmm. um but there's there's so much mythology and power there and i think we tend as you know we grew up evangelical and we tend to look at that as like the outer world mm -hmm. but there's there's just so much value there um, yeah you know we you talk about People talk about reconstructing. You should reconstruct after you deconstruct. Well, I I think that a lot of the world is already constructed, and yeah. we just have to see that it's there. Yeah, I I yeah. This whole notion of stories is just. I mean, growing up, I grew up in an abusive household, so I would lock myself in my room and just read, 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 read. Eventually, my parents stopped taking me to the library because they would not take me back in time, so I would have so many fees. Like. I think it was like 10 cents a day that you were late and I racked up like $60 in fines, which is not like wow. a lot of money, but it- At what age? Um, This was probably middle school. I would, wow. they would only let you take out 10 at a time. So I would take the 10 and then um, we had like a week or something. My parents wouldn't take me back in the week. I'm, and I would read so fast and be done with a 10 in like five days i was so the, so the librarians would see you show up with your 60 dollars fine and they go like what's her story yeah yeah i mean my teachers were like is something wrong or are you too smart for your own good but then i was kind of a lunatic like so they're like mm, maybe she's not a genius but she likes to read a lot yeah it was pretty it was a huge obsession of mine i mean i tell most people i've read more books than you've probably ever read in your life hmm. um you'll find this funny in the seventh grade I had this teacher who loved that I was obsessed with reading. She would give me books all the time. And then all of a sudden she sees me walk in with Machiavelli's The Prince and is like completely concerned about this child reading The Prince. 
and wow. it was yeah i was pretty pretty i would read anything i could get my hands on i'm sure yeah. at the time i wasn't like oh i'm reading machiavelli yeah. it was just like this is the yeah. next thing in the library i think i think there's actually something that changes in you when you read that much yes i like, agree like, it it sort of you know how they how how self-help people talk about um you know the 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 subliminal messages that you're imprinting mm. upon yourself well, when you read that much and all those experiences and all those stories it it really it makes you more articulate mm. the words are in your head the ideas are in your head you see things and perceive things differently yeah um you you can express yourself better i think i agree um like yeah. writing has always come so easily to me and at first i didn't understand why like i wrote my senior thesis paper in four hours all 20 pages of it with the research included because i'm just a lunatic and i have a little bit of adhd so i can hyper focus to the max mm. and i was like well, how do you do that and was, i'm pretty sure it's just because i've read so much that i just know how it goes i know the process like i yeah i know how to say what i want to say because of what other people have already done yes and yeah. it has made me, I feel like, more empathetic because when you read anything you can get your hands on, you read about so many cultures, you read fantasy, you read like self-help books, you just process so much information. Yes, exactly. And you recognize that the world is so big and so small at the same time. It has its patterns. Yeah, there's nothing, you can't help but be empathetic and want to learn more about what is happening in general even if you're not reading it in a book you just are so used to the learning that you just get caught up in it all the time yeah yeah what are you reading now right now <laughs> this is funny i'm reading um i think i always get the title slightly wrong it's i'm glad my mom is dead by jeanette mccurdy oh yeah that's on the bestseller list yes my brother got it for me for my birthday because we have a difficult relationship with our mother and was like this is a little aggressive but i will read it <laughs> uh turns out that jeanette mccurdy was mormon um which is funny because my partner is ex-mormon so i just mm -hmm. find it hilarious and it's very good i mean i love that she i'm halfway through the book and she has spent most of this time building the story of what her relationship was with her mother like she hasn't talked bad about her mom yet like she hasn't done anything but show the pattern from when she was a child and how acting and all this stuff um it's like a different pace and i really appreciate that as somebody who has a toxic mother it's nice mm -hmm. to paint the full picture for people not just fuck my mom it's no this is this is the story this is how we got to this book mm-hmm mm-hmm so I'm reading that at the yeah. moment. I just picked up uh, Lucinda Williams' memoir. She's the um, Americana um, singer-songwriter of great stature mm -hmm. at this point in yep. her life. That's um, fun. I love I'm memoirs. Also, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm also reading a memoir called Open Secrets by uh, Richard Lisher, I think is his name. Kind of more... Um, uh, more old school, older white, older white guy kind of memoir, mm -hmm. but he was a pastor and he's describing his experiences of, of coming from a very highfalutin liberal theolo theology seminary in the Northeast to being a pastor at a country church in Missouri oh. <laughs> and the sort of dissonance that he has and 
um a yankee it really in the south. you know <laughs> you know in, in in sort of a lot of the um you know in sort of the agitation that we're all kind of in against the dominant uh form of christian of religion in the united states um it, it's just a reminder at how much people's identities are wrapped up mm. in their religion and it's not something that we can just sort of flip a switch on yeah and how how do we find our way into the new world that we're in now um it's it's been a the book has been a really good reminder and and this guy um is just like very literate i mean he he uses words none of them are like really hard to understand but i do have to look them up sometimes yeah, yeah, yeah. oh like, wait that's fun as a like, publisher even, like, the word, even the word like nonchalance you know yeah. who uses that word anymore i know for real and yet it's like that's actually a really cool word why don't we use it more yeah oh i'm um, speaking of this i'm really curious what you would have to say because um growing up i grew up in you know the hood i grew up in a predominantly hispanic neighborhood um, where where i grew up in southgate california so it's okay. um near long beach near compton linwood it's like that okay. Huntington park all that area mm -hmm. um and i mean i went to nice school but i for so long growing up really cultivated the way i spoke because i did i wanted to be taken seriously so i didn't speak with uh what they would call a chola accent like most of my cousins have a latin twinge to the way they speak and just because yeah. that's the way we speak to each other that's the natural course of things and i was convinced rightfully so i would assume that if i spoke that way that i wouldn't be taken as seriously as if i as if i had like developed my vocabulary and spoken like a white person and spoken academically and now i've kind of gone back on that my dad gets upset because he says that i say fuck every other word and i'm like well it's like it feels natural to me one because i'm an aggressive person and two because it feels just more personable like i feel especially in these spaces with like you have a platform of some kind i never want mm -hmm. people to feel like i'm above them or i want to be like on their level and which is not to say that everybody says fuck every other word but i just feel like it makes me more accessible but would you agree that it's like a hindrance or has been in the past maybe that what has been a hindrance the way that one speaks yeah absolutely uh you know the the words you choose the way you say them there is there is all kinds of meaning attached to those mm. things mm -hmm. uh, and they are connected to things like race class gender sexuality yeah uh, whatever whatever categories we should be talking about um without a doubt and you know they they're they're, they're symbols mm -hmm. you know and they and they go in different directions at least two different directions at the same time and they're paradoxes too for that yeah. matter yeah I, i've been in the corporate world a lot and i i would like listen to ceos talk like they've got this <laughs> a certain kind of voice that really booms and gets really low and you <laughs> yes, know exactly <laughs> and i learned to talk like that for a little while i thought that yeah. was a good thing but i was like oh no yeah. yeah yeah and that's very that's very white itself probably um not necessarily but yeah yeah I and I definitely I definitely think like even just like I have uh I have a couple of black authors in my small stable mm. and um you know 
you, there, there's definitely different cadence. Every author I like to say has a different thumbprint. Yeah. And when you read their writing and you know how they talk as a person in everyday life, usually you see a connection between those two things. Mm -hmm. um, even Lucinda Williams, as I read her memoir, I'm like, that sounds like your lyrics and your songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way you talk, um, the way you put words together. Um, but even these these two black authors, it's like, okay, this is really different. And mm -hmm. they don't sound white. Yeah. And um, and I I I don't, I you know I'm a white guy. I don't know very many black copy editors and proofreaders. I've tried to find some. Um but even then, I think a lot of us are trained to do language a certain way. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no Chicago manual of style or <laughs> yeah. for for some of the writing that I'm editing. And, and yeah, it does apply, but you know, you have to kind of be more expansive and almost kind of let it live on its own. Yeah. And and let let some of the rules be not just broken, but rewritten. Yeah. Um, you know, for someone to say that, well, that book, that word is not in the dictionary. No, that's not true. Dictionaries are changing and being updated all the time. Mm -hmm. um, different words are being added. Yeah, um, I can only imagine if Sandra Cisneros was edited like a white person, like her literature wouldn't have made mm -hmm. any impact. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm I love the fact that you're so you're such a reader and you're so interested <laughs> in publishing. <laughs> When you're gonna, when are you gonna? You can write a, you can write a, a, a term paper in four hours. Yeah, I can. You can get a sixty thousand word manuscript done in four weeks. Probably less. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, this is embarrassing to tell a publisher, but I self-published a book a few years ago. It was a book. No, of it's not embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> not know. at all. I find yeah. it incredibly well. I think it's embarrassing because it's about love and. Um, it's a little aggressive like the poetry is a little like poetry oh, this girl's a bitch like it's just and this is before i'd ever been in love so it was all kind of like an experiment for me but it was really funny yeah i did poetry but i am um, mostly an essay writer i like essays better than poetry but poetry i write because it's i have i'm an obsessive journaler so i have like 40 plus full journals of just no way yeah wow. it's it's yeah adhd really got me um <laughs> and Do you see a link between your reading and the journaling is it does it feel like it comes from the same emotion and source and desire? no actually it doesn't so my reading mm. comes from curiosity and i find that my writing comes from me needing to get something out like yeah. i often tell people that if i'm not writing in my journal for a period of time it's because I'm really struggling in life because as soon as it's written it's real and I don't want things to be real so I don't write them down whereas my reading I'm just trying to get everything like I want to know the ins and out of everything in the world which I think gives me an existential crisis which is probably then what I write down <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it probably is connected the fact that you've journaled so much I mean that that's what publishers like to hear honestly because that's <laughs> that says that you've documented a lot of things, not just your experiences. So we're not, we don't, it doesn't have to be a memoir, but you've documented ideas and insights yeah. and observations. Uh, you notice things. Um, that's what writing, really good writing is all about. You know, if you were to, um, you know, you, you probably could, you know, be a really good book writer. 
a that, that that longer form you heard it here first everybody yeah. <laughs> come on let's figure it out all right i'll do it i've been um actually have been thinking a lot about different ideas but, but i mean mostly for my own edification because I, I i'm a project person i need a project and i feel like i've needed specifically yeah. with grief actually i have a friend who's been wanting to collaborate on a book so maybe I'll just say yes. Yeah. It sounded a little daunting, but I was like, well, what, what is like your big, what is the thing that you like to say a lot? You talked about, you've mentioned the word grief, mm. but what, what is it like, what is it that your friends or you find yourself always saying to people about life, about how things work? Honestly, I often talk to people about how I live my life without shame. Like mm. it's the thing that people are the most curious about, especially my friends Cause like, like the other day I completely was thrown over by a wave in the ocean and I did not care. Like I was not concerned with what other people like saw, like as I was flailing about and like, how do you not, or I don't care how I look on the internet. Like if I'm recording something funny, I'll just post it. Cause I don't care. Um, if somebody takes a picture of me in a group shot and I'm the one person who looks like an idiot in that picture, you can post it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of that has to do with trauma and like especially going to like an evangelical school it was this notion of like everybody's so like taboo about sex we can't talk about sexuality because we're at a christian university we gotta be nice and pious and i would have those conversations with literally anybody who would ask I'd be like sex is just sex like, i don't understand so that's pretty much my yeah my my shtick is that shame like not feeling shame is a negative statement what's the positive statement does it mean that you you understand freedom yeah is i i feel completely free which is not to say that i don't experience pain or anything like that or even shame from time to time right but i don't yeah. i don't overthink things like mm -hmm. if if things get messed up okay we'll we'll figure it out we'll fix it then but I, and I just don't play games. I don't like, no, I just, yeah. 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 Well, I think, you know, I'm not sure what kind of writer you are that you, you know, you can come up with like a self-help sort of like, here's the 10 steps to not feeling shame and experiencing How to be a freedom. bad bitch. A lot of those are out there already, <laughs> yeah. as you might know. Yeah. Um, you could write novels about, about that theme, um, or you could write more literary uh, narratives, essays, yeah. Uh, maybe within a maybe with a certain within a certain container like mm. the life of faith or um I am being, curious about it in like a faith the, yeah faith atmosphere. Just because yeah. I mean shame has always been so like shoved down your throat and especially yeah. in evangelicalism. So that's interesting. Wow, David. that's what I like about this author who's in comedy that I, I work with yeah. on the agenting side because her she grew up. Uh, staunchly evangelical very restrictive but her co her comedy is so unfiltered even sexually unfiltered yeah and um and it's just like wow you never see these two things going together mm -hmm. <laughs> although maybe in a way they actually do they're they're there's they're they're kind of on the different sides of the same coin yeah. but she's actually letting that part out and and i i say keep it coming because the, these are muscles that as evangelical minded people, we were, we've never learned to exercise that kind of freedom within mm -hmm. this environment. And here you are doing it. And yeah, it's such, it's such a good thing. And I, I think that's, you know, you, with all that journaling and all that reading you've done, <laughs> you could, you could write a great book about this topic. 
All right, great. I'll work on my Instagram following to make it really worth your while. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 25,000 at least, please. Great. I got it. I'll, uh, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I love it. Well, David, why don't you plug away at all the things you got going on right now? Uh, you can oh. plug anything. Any books coming up? Anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah. Um, let me just mention first on the agenting side. Yeah. Um, I've got a, I've got a stable of authors. It's at hyponymous.com, H-Y-P-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S, hyponymous.com. Great word. Um, one of my one of my uh, cherished authors on that side is Brad Onishi, who came out with <gasps> Preparing for Brad. War. Yeah, We're... Straight White American Jesus We're podcast. We're homies. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's I I really have a lot of cred to him because he's helped driven some of my other clients there. David yeah. Gushy is another one. Uh, it's been a big, big deal for me on that side. Um, I did a launch party at my church. We did like a whole thing. For Gushi or for Onishi? For Onishi. Yeah. 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 Thank so you. So connected, David. Come on. Yeah. yeah. And then, <laughs> and then linkdrivebooks.com. Join, you know, join our email list. There's, you know, I'll send you a free audio book if you do Audible. Um, if you join the email list, it's all there when you join. Um, follow my authors. It's really important to, that we all just stay connected and mm -hmm. engaged and involved with each other uh, and, and spread the word about books because word of mouth is still the number one way that people find out about books and read them. It's true. I've I, specifically Brad's book. I talk up because um, I like to shove it in a lot of conservative people's faces. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know if it's helping sales, but it's helping my self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good book. It's still, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's like nine months out now and it's, it's still amazing. And it's, it's still important with the election yeah. season coming up. Oh yes. Don't remind Even the rest so. of us. <laughs> yeah. We'll start Thanks pushing so in here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, friends, as always, you can find us at speaking in church on Instagram. You can find me at Josie takes the world for dog and crochet uh, situations. We have merch and we have a tip jar. All of those are the link in our bio. Um, that's it. So anyways, stay woke or get woke, friends, please, for the love of God. Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.